Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome to episode 38 of the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight we've got another interview with some other members of the team over at Danvers and Games. But first, we're going to talk Blood Red Skies before we leave it behind to talk about other people's game systems. A couple things I wanted to talk about were the virtual gathering of eagles that we had a couple weeks ago. I thought it was awesome. Brett, you're on tonight. What would you think of the virtual GOE? Oh man, I had, I had a blast. Of course you had a blast. You took up the whole time talking and being the guy giving the painting class for yeah. all day. It, yeah, I worked right through lunch and didn't realize it and uh, just kind of rambled on about campaign stuff. But hey, I guess we'd have worse problems. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It was it was fun. So we didn't play a tournament and that's OK by me because, you know, when I think of competitive players, uh, but we did play a little bit of the Malta scenarios and some of the Malta aircraft. Uh, and that was fun. And we had a variety of skill levels out there. And uh, the RAF side with Roz and I still got schooled and shot down. But it was a lot of fun. And then obviously we had happy hour, hung out, drank beer, stared at each other on TV screens or on computer screens. Uh, but I thought it was a good time. Uh, was there anything that you thought you wanted to see different next time, Brett? Uh, yeah, I hope to be able to resolve the sort of focus issue on the on for a painting tutorial next time, because that was kind of frustrating getting the... Get your camera. own damn camera. That's the answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll take... You'll you have to tu- uh, tutor me on exactly what I need. Yeah, I think Chris had the good setup with his digital SLR, so I think we'll, uh, we may do the same thing for our next one. Uh, speaking of next one, we have no idea when the next virtual gathering of Eagles will be, uh, probably sometime this summer, uh, because everybody kind of had a good time. Personally, I'd like to play a little bit more tabletop sim uh, and have less people talking about painting. Who cares about painting? I uh, <laughs> have virtual models. But, uh, you know, it's, it's whatever anybody wants. So... If you enjoyed the virtual gathering vehicles, uh, first of all, please give us some feedback. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, also, kind of importantly, email Warlord Games. Say, hey, we really enjoyed these virtual events uh, because the more they get used to that, the less they think like 20th century miniature companies. And they start thinking kind of like the future and realizing that a big part of their online following wants to do things online. So help they, us I out. I guess, do they have the, it might be a naive in thinking that they have the capacity to produce something that's pretty high speed on that end for what part exactly for a uh, you know some kind of virtual like they could they could host something is that wah, unreasonable wah, wah. uh yeah so so i i will throw my spirit warlord here and and i'll probably be de-invited from anything warlord ever again uh but <laughs> the the thing is, Warlord just doesn't have much more than a very small social media footprint, which is fine. I mean, it makes it really easy to interact with their social media guy, uh, all one of them. Uh, but I think uh, what we've seen is they've they've done some stuff on, Twi- stuff on Twitch uh, with some live streams. But uh, as to actually putting a whole whole event together, that might be a stretch. But it's always something we can throw at them. Uh, no, because personally, I'd, I'd love to see them step up and, and do it. I think it would be awesome. I mean, I, I thought what we did was super fun. And I was happy to do it. I would think that uh, their presence would be would maybe attract more attendees. I don't know, just spitballing. Yeah, yeah. And it was great to have Andy there uh, to be basically uh, our victim there in Discord. So 
So if you thought you were going to get a canned setup like I had kind of planned, oh no, Andy jumped into Discord with the rest of us and we all chatted and told jokes and watched my computer internet connection crash. Uh, but yeah, uh, John was there the whole time, and, and I don't mean to disparage Warlord Games. They were certainly gracious for the whole thing. I mean, everything they you know, participated and congratulated us on, it was all very nice. Yeah, yeah. I think the the takeaway is like a lot of... A lot of smaller events, uh, it it may or may not be worth the while of big companies to get involved, other than sending a representative to uh, to smile and say hi uh, and to answer some questions. Um, but Warlord, if you're listening and you'd like to run one of these, we'd love to help you out with it. And we'll give you all our lessons learned and things not to do, like don't sit in South Carolina and depend upon your string and tin can internet connection. Uh, <laughs> So, well, you know, I'm just thinking about it because maybe because of the whole work situation now, we're so accustomed already in just these past several weeks of doing all these virtual things for work that, you know, I don't know if we're entering a new era. That may be too strong to say, but I think folks are just a lot more comfortable and are ready, maybe more ready than they ever were to receive content in that kind of format. So, hey, maybe maybe we kind of start a thing. I think they are, and this is my continual pitch to Warlord, and I, I know you're all tired of hearing it there at Warlord headquarters. Uh, get on board for the big win with virtual stuff. It's only going to sell more miniatures because the problem is humans are still tactile, feeling kind of creatures. And so so we'll play a lot of online games, but then when we go and take a look at your website and go, ooh, I can buy that in resin. Ooh, I can I can actually buy little airplanes that I can paint up. Uh, most of us are suckers, and, and we're going to fall for that, too. So <laughs> join us, do something virtual, and Warlord, have a little bit of fun while you're at it. Anyway, enough about the virtual stuff. We'll figure out a date uh, later in the summer for another one, hopefully, uh, assuming my schedule doesn't go to the dogs. But anyway, uh, the real Gathering of Eagles, or I should say the in-person Gathering of Eagles, uh, Labor Day weekend, Indianapolis, 4, 5, and 6 September. Uh, contracts have been signed, yes, with COVID clauses to get out of them. Uh, but uh, we're tentatively thinking that we might be able to do an in-person event if it's small. We know that a huge convention won't be allowed to go, but if it's something less than 100 people, we might be able to do it. So... Soon the registration information will appear on the website. Soon the hotel information will appear there as well. Uh, please sign up. It is, once again, fully refundable when you pre-order uh, or do your pre-registration. So if things get canceled, we'll refund that. Uh, it's not a big deal. We, uh, we just want to see who all would be interested, who wants to show up in person, uh, drink beer, push a little plastic and resin and occasionally metal, airplanes around the board, uh, and have a good time. So... More will be forthcoming on the website. Expect to see some some uh, information pushes here soon. Well, along with the lead pursuit kind of events, uh, John Russell, as usual, suckered me into something. You know, I, I don't know what what it is with the pusher, um, but I'm going out to Twisted Lords. So, 24th through 26th July, Oklahoma City, uh, right near Tinker Air Force Base. So, if you ever stopped in and got a Tinker Burger, you'd know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, uh, we'll be there and we'll be playing some midway scenarios. We'll play some MIG alley. We may do some other stuff time dependent, uh, because we know there's always a limit on tables, uh, at events like that. But, uh, if you want to come see kind of what the new midway scenarios may play like, let's come play some midway. Want to see some cool miniatures and, uh, and push those around and shoot down some Japanese or shoot down some Americans. If you play the Japanese, uh, come out and do that. And we'll, we'll play at least one big game per day. 
uh, and then probably have a lot of pickup games for Blood Red Skies that'll go on. So 24 through 26 July, go out to uh, search for Twisted Lords. You can sign up. Uh, there's different tickets for different days. Uh, I believe there's a $30 all access or 35 at the door. So go sign up and figure it out. So after that, let's see what's next. Well, I'm not going to Slaughterfest in August because uh, fuck the veteran gamer re-enlisted guys and I don't want to go to their event because it's 40K. Oh, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I love you guys. You're great. Uh, hope the best that Slaughterfest goes out in August out in California. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and that, uh, that'll be the first 40K tournament uh, out there for the year. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, but, uh, there should be a lot of events hopefully coming up after that. I know a number of them have canceled, uh, but in the August, September, uh, timeframe, uh, when we're trying to do our gathering of Eagles, hopefully things will have, uh, relaxed a little bit, uh, or we'll be in the middle of a second lockdown and we'll all just be playing tabletop sim again. How about that, Brett? <laughs> Let's do it. Want to play some more tabletop sim? Yeah, that may be our fall. We'll see. Uh, get your gaming in while you can. So a couple other things that have come out, uh, we released, uh, in concert with Litco, the new Airstrike flak markers, uh, a little five pack of those. Brett, did you see those on the website? Man, those are sweet. I really like them. I'm getting some. I'm getting two packs. <laughs> well, I'll bring them down for you. Yeah, they're uh, they're cool. I like them. I'm really happy because the team at Litco worked with us when we said, hey, we just need some minor tweaks. We want to make sure they're exactly the right scale so that nobody says, hey, your flak marker is too big, can't be used competitively, whatever. Don't care. They're exactly 20 millimeters, uh, just like your little boom chip that the rule calls for. Uh, and I think they're pretty cool because they've got three different elevations and a bunch of little sparkly uh, you know, explosions on there. Um, so I know I've got a couple sets that I uh, glued together and I plan on using uh, when we beat up on Chris uh, here at the end of the month uh, down at Brett's house. How, the do, last I, how thing, do I order those? Tell me, tell me again how oh, I grab oh, those. How do you order those? Well, it's, it's so funny. You should ask. You go over to the Lead Pursuit podcast website, which is leadpursuit.net slash store. And you go out there. I guess it's really a backslash, not a slash. Either way, whatever. Uh, and you go out there and you go to the store and there's all kinds of stuff there. There's uh, Airstrike flak markers for about $9. You got Airstrike tokens for about 23 The Malta map. Hey, do you want a Malta map? You can buy a Malta map. We'll have it shipped to you for 150 bucks. Uh, even airstrike dials. So you get tired of putting little chits down and, and dice trying to keep track of your hull points and your area hits. Uh, a couple little sets of dials down there that you can dial in exactly how many hits you have left uh, and keep track of it. And then, of course, as always in the era of social distancing, we've even got masks. A10 warthog masks on there. Uh, and I think the, uh, the P40 mask art I have to put up there for pre-order. So Pre-order yourself a cool aviation mask while you're at it if you want one. <laughs> That's awesome. I saw those on Facebook. That's hilarious. Yeah, I was laughing. I, uh, a good friend of mine, Rich Cooper, who runs the Center of Aviation Photography, did the A-10 masks. Uh, they are cool, but my problem was I'm like, man, I, I, I play a historical war game. I'm, I'm doing stuff, uh, you know, with, with P-40s and all kinds of other things. So uh, he and I and his artists collaborated Came up with the uh, the art for the P-40 Warhawk uh, shark mouth mask, and it looks pretty cool, I think. So I'm definitely going to be wearing those probably while we're, uh, <laughs> at least while traveling to and from uh, the conventions this year. Oh, good point. Yeah, I need to grab up one of those P-40s for the trip to Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if you're flying, you're wearing one. So uh, go ahead and pick them up now. <laughs> pick up that in your extra hand sanitizer. All right, let's roll over to the hangar and talk about new stuff that we picked up. 
so so for me, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate to have a great team on the Lead Pursuit podcast because they they open my eyes to stuff I might not normally have. And having Chris on the Lead Pursuit podcast, he's not here tonight to discuss these things because otherwise he'd tell us how great they are. Um, but he, because he plays so many collectible card games like Magic the Gathering, uh, he really turned me on to a lot of these card protectors and, and card holders. Um, and so I went out, picked up a couple of them off Amazon uh, for holding my Blood Red Skies cards, holding the Phantom Leader cards, because if you haven't looked at Phantom Leader or any of those games, oh my God, do they have a lot of cards. Uh, but there's a couple things that, that I picked up. Uh, I picked up some from Ultra Pro, which you can find on Amazon. And they've got you know like a 25-card plastic pack that is great for Blood Red Skies because you don't have a ton of cards. Um, but it's hard plastic, so you can throw them in there, throw it in with your miniatures, uh, and your cards won't get too beat up. And that's, you know, an eight-pack of those is like about 11 bucks. And then they have the regular uh, Ultra Pro deck boxes. Uh, I picked up a couple of those because you can put a bunch of cards in them so you can throw all of your theater, doctrine, ace cards kind of all in those, even though it's a different size. Uh, and you get like a five-pack of those for 10 bucks, and they're kind of a thin plastic. Uh, but they but they work pretty well. Um, but, you know, for serious Magic the Gathering players like Chris, uh, they had the uh, the guys over at Monster Protectors put out some, some big card deck holders that'll hold either uh, two or three full-size decks. So you could buy one of those and one of their two-packs and probably throw all your Blood Red Skies cards in it. Uh, and it makes a nice, uh, compact little kind of thin plastic uh, uh, case that you can carry around. And they, and they run somewhere around $10, dollars $12. Are those um, cases the right size for those for the smaller cards, like the trait cards? So the, those cards? cards fit sideways. It's kind of funny. Now, the, the only thing I found the hard way is not every sleeve fits in there. So a lot of the cheaper, thin, uh, very thin, low, very few mil plastic sleeves fit great. Uh, some of the kind of premium ones I had that have matte backing and all that, that were just a little bit too large, don't necessarily fit well in all of them. So what I recommend is have your card sleeves on hand, uh, go order them. And if they don't fit right, send them back to Amazon. Um, but generally the, the boxes will fit any card, uh, any sleeved card or will fit the, um, the smaller cards, the mini cards sideways. So. You can you can stack a bunch of stuff in there. That may be better than my my rubber band method. Yeah, I it, <laughs> you know I, I got them and they they work great for Phantom Leader. It's kind of funny. So for a really card intensive game, they work great. Uh, for the amount of cards I have right now for Blood Red Skies, I don't need the larger ones. The small little kind of twenty five card holder works great for the uh, for the aircraft cards. Um, jury for me is still out. I'm going to try the one of the deck boxes to hold all my mini cards, um, but. You know, either way, I still have to sort them when I get out of there. So something something worth trying. But I hear you picked up some decals this week. Yeah, Kevin at uh, Miscellaneous Miniatures worked up a sheet for me for my Stalingrad uh, 109Gs. And uh, it wasn't a terribly complicated sheet. Be- I mean, I, at least to hear him say it, it was something he already had artwork for. He just kind of combined some unit things, insignia, whatever on a single sheet so I could kind of have a variety of stuff from two different squadrons and some special aces that I'm working on. But he told me when he uh, completed that sheet for me, let me know it was available that he's so busy right now with um, uh, fulfilling orders and, you know, printing stuff out and running to the post office just to to fulfill standard orders that he's not accepting any custom work right now, unless it's something that's 
you know, kind of like this thing I just described where he already has the work, the work done and he just has to put it on a, maybe a different sheet or reorder something. Uh, he's not doing anything custom because he's slammed, which I guess is a good thing. I yeah, guess everybody's I guess, home. I guess it's a good hobby. thing. Hey, thanks all you assholes out there that are ordering decals. Now we can't get any custom work done. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because just like uh, armaments in miniature, you know, with David Schmid, that, that everything there, he's so busy. He's probably six to eight weeks behind in his orders. Um, it's actually good in a sense because at least we're driving some, some business to them and the Blood Red Skies community has really been trying to pick up a lot of neat stuff from them. So uh, maybe we need to find some uh, summer interns for both those guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take a little bit of the workload off and <laughs> be able to print package and take things to the post office. So if you live in New Jersey and you want to be a resin miniatures intern, uh, call Dave Schmidt. Send him an email. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, let's go ahead and move on to tonight's discussion with Kevin and Sarah from Dan Versen Games. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're going back off the reservation, leaving Warlord Games and Blood Red Skies behind. We're talking to the other parts of the crew over at Danvers and Games, the younger section, Kevin and Sarah. Kevin, Sarah, how are you all doing tonight? We're doing good. Yeah, doing good. <laughs> yeah. We're having fun. Glad to have you guys on the podcast. I, I think it's pretty funny to, uh, to have talked to Dan uh, a couple times about things and then uh, get to interview you guys because I always feel like I should have made a list of things that Dan told me that I wanted to fact check. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Was it this difficult? Was it this demanding? Or is he just being difficult? No, I, uh, I, I'm really glad he gave us a lot of, uh, of his time and yeah. I'm looking forward to talking to you all tonight about, uh, about some things. So you got to explain it to me. How, Sarah, we're going to go to you first. How does a poor, wonderful, nice person like you get drug into this game designing and producing family? Tell me how, please tell me you were a normal person and then you met Kevin and, <laughs> and, and you got drug into this wargaming world. Um, as normal as any person could be, I suppose. Um, yeah, me and Kevin met actually on a dating app. Um, we were both looking to find the one and who knew that we would both run into each other and that would be it. Um, and then after our second or third date, he said, Hey, my family, they, they make board games and they just got a new product in and they need some help um, shipping out all these orders that were pre-ordered. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm a college student. I need some money. That sounds yeah. reasonable <laughs> so, so it's the old Huck Finn proposition it's like hey why don't my friends come over let's all hang out oh yeah I actually need you to do some work you're actually going to do all of my work for me nice work Kevin Good job there. <laughs> yeah, kind of got thrown in the deep end, um, went to their warehouse. I brought my roommate along at the time and met his parents, his sister, his friends, his cousin, all in one go. It was like a 16-hour work day in 105-degree SoCal summer weather in like yeah. August. And uh, it was it was a miserable experience, but I got to get to know him and his family, <laughs> which was great. Well, well, I think that really kind of kind of hits on what we want to talk about tonight is, you know, all those things people don't think about in the in the game design and production industry. You know, everyone thinks, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm going to press a button yeah. in order once once Kickstarter is complete and and everyone's pledged their money and then stuff will magically show up from China and we're good. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> There's a lot so, more to it. <laughs> yeah. From, from talking to you guys, I have I have learned that that is not entirely the case, that there's there's a lot of things that that can go awry. Uh 
Kevin, how how did you really decide that? All right, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to. I'm definitely going to stay in my dad's chosen field of gaming and not go off and do something that uh, is probably uh, more quote unquote normal in the uh, in the world's eyes. Well, it. Um, I would honestly say it just had to do with how much fun it was. I like, as it turns out, being raised by two game designer, game developer parents, a lot of your life is based around games and rules, both seeing it on the table as well as their parenting style. And so as soon as I started playing the games and playtesting them, I started realizing, so that's why you raised me like that, or that's why you worded (laughs) that constructive criticism that way, because that's how you do it in a rule book, to make sure it's perfectly clear and there's no misunderstanding. Did you look at your parents and say, excuse me, are we talking about rules as written or rules as intended here? (laughs) Because apparently you didn't word them right, because rules as written, I can go out tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but um, I just realized how much fun it was being able to tinker around with mechanics in games and get a sense of here's what I want the game to feel like but here's how the game plays like and how do I connect those two bridges and it was just a lot of fun and they walked me through it they helped me get up um, in the early just like here's how to play test and I was rolling dice for my parents when I was like three years old of uh, my mom would have me sitting on her lap she would hand me 2d10 and ask me to toss them and I usually threw them off the table but they <laughs> they uh, worked with me through that well, well see once again rules as written she just said toss the yeah. dice she didn't say toss them on the table where we could actually use them and have a valid dice roll. (laughs) (laughs) Nice work. Nice work. No, that's, that's good. Well, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit offline as we were trying to, you know, figure out things that people would be interested in. Uh, and, And I really think one of the great things from, you know, talking both to Dan and then talking to you all is dispelling so many of those rumors, you know, or I shouldn't say rumors, so many of those misconceptions about, about how you do things in the gaming industry, about how, how easy or how hard it is. And that, you know, like like any kind of job that delivers a, a package or a product, uh, there's always misunderstandings between you know you and the and the vendor that produces it, and and a lot of those kind of things that you you go through. Um, tell me tell me a little bit about about that, since you guys have done obviously so much through Kickstarter. Uh, there's a little bit of a peril there that you're you think you know what you're getting, you think you know what you're designing, you you hit send and and. Do things always show up the way you planned when you unbox the crate? <laughs> no. Well, that's actually more uh, Sarah's expertise. Yeah, actually, kind of leading back to the story of how I met Kevin's family and kind of jumped into this business, the reason I was there that day to help with their packout was because one of the products they'd received, which was our Warfighter Modern Footlocker, um, it was ordered with the intention of it having a counter tray within the box. And we didn't know until we received it from our printer that the counter trays ended up being outside the box. And so we had to spend a 16 hour, oh, it's over two days, I think, but yeah. 16 hours unwrapping every single footlocker, putting a counter tray inside, closing it back up, re-shrink wrapping it. And that's just one of those things of things were supposed to go a certain way. They didn't. We had to fix it. And um, we told our customers and warned them it's going to be a, a week late because yeah. we had to do this whole process. Right. Um, but that happens more often than we would, <laughs> than we yeah. would expect. But we're, it does happen a lot. Like little uh, mistakes. If we had a game come out, um, Castle Eater, 
<clears throat> and um, Castle Eater used little wooden cubes, as did Pavlov's house. Well, there was a miscommunication somewhere around the line, and the Castle Leader games received the Pavlov's House cubes instead of the Castle Leader cubes. <laughs> right. Oops. And so the quantities were all off, and it was actually ended up being our printer's mistake. And so they uh, were more than willing to send us the correct baggies of cubes, and then we had to open up all the games, put the right cubes in the boxes, re-shrink wrap them, and mail out the little cubes to people who had already received the games, because we didn't realize that until a customer pointed it out like a couple weeks after we shipped all the Kickstarter orders. And so then we had to ship these little baggies of cubes out to hundreds yeah. and hundreds of customers. Yeah. Um, but that type of stuff happens maybe like once a year. Of <laughs> It's just a small little thing that just, this is outside the box. It should be in the box. Or this component isn't the correct component. And then we normally get all the friends and family together. And we put the correct component in, take the incorrect component out, whatever. But maybe like one out of every 10 games, there's a little issue like that. Yeah, part of working with humans, we make mistakes. And yeah. yeah. We it, make it, well, exactly. Does, whatever. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, I don't know how you guys have your business relationships, but uh, I'm sure every once in a while you're changing between, you know, either people at a printer that you're used to working with. And so they've got someone new. And so there's things that you assumed that they knew that the new guy doesn't know. The new guy or gal may go, ah, why would they want it that way? <laughs> so th things you have to work through there that are that are always that will always derail you. Well, well what are some of those other um, Kickstarter specific crises, things that have come up where you say, oh, sure wish we'd thought of that and we're going to include it in our planning process the next time. Um, I think before, before we started using backer kit, it was a big uh, Kickstarter was a big struggle. <laughs> I jumped in um, maybe a couple years ago, but before we started using backer kit and um the way we managed Kickstarters was all through Kickstarter and Kickstarter doesn't have a very good way for customers to communicate with us what they're intending to spend their money on. Right. And right. so jumping into backer kit really changed how we did everything and um, made it a lot simpler. So I'm so grateful we found a system that allowed yeah. the whole Kickstarter process just to be easier on everyone. Yeah. I've noticed that just, you know, with a, a number of different Kickstarters in the way that, that you have to interact with them. Sometimes it can be just, ludicrously painful to really kind of kind of get uh, get all the options and everything figured out. And then for you guys, at least my experience uh, for Thunderbolt Apache was it was pretty straightforward. It was just one of those things of stop and only buy what you want. <laughs> Don't jump in on all the other rule systems that you can think about that are out there. So uh, yeah, I can I can see how that definitely um, would be kind of kind of a crisis there. Well, obviously, everything that you guys do is really, really team oriented. So even though I, I kind of chuckle that a lot of the games are uh, solo or cooperative play in that sense against an AI, uh, a lot of the effort of putting things together certainly is not a solo effort. No, um, no. And, uh, and so let's talk a little bit about you know some of the key relationships out there, people that you found that are, are key members of your team, because obviously... DVG is not a thousand person company here. <laughs> so, so you guys obviously have to make those business relationships and find people that are, that are aligned in work ethic and, and kind of in the same vision that you guys have. Uh, has that been a struggle or has it been kind of easy over time to just, you know, pick and choose from people who really want to help out? Uh, or, or is it a continual process? Well, it's, um, it's a process because normally we'll get a game submission from someone or most commonly what happens is someone will private message me and say, I really want to make a game about World War One blimps. 
and it's okay. How do you want to go about this? And then sending them an NDA contract so that way what I give to him, what he gives to us stays our own and we don't need to worry about um, you know legal hassles or anything. And I would say most of the time people come to me and say, I really want to make a game. And we message back and forth for a few weeks and then they start to slowly fall off and then it's a few more weeks and a few months and then suddenly, you know, they're not responding and it's okay. You wanted to make a game, but you just didn't really, um, you didn't know enough about the subjects. You're going to go research it and come back to me in six months. Um, what I've been really lucky with, though, is some of the designers that I'm working with currently, um, Chuck Seeger, Ian Martin, Dean Brown, uh, James Garten. They've all been working on their projects and talking with me, and we've been going back and forth. And it's more important to have a good relationship with someone, I feel, than for them to be a good game designer. And in my case, I'm lucky for both. But being able to talk to somebody and have them understand, I'm not attacking you. I'm saying the ideas you came up with are not as good as they could have been. And for them to take that, <laughs> take oh, a deep oh, yeah. breath and say, okay, let's figure this out is a big thing that not many people can do. So I feel really lucky that the people I work with are able to uh, take constructive criticism from me as well as I take constructive criticism from them. Well, I'm sure there's there's always a certain ownership you feel over a rule set game concept, right. uh, things like that, that, that makes it difficult for people to take the ego out of it as, as we used to say, and, uh, and just let the cards kind of fall where they, where they do. Does, does the game uh, work perfectly fine without that mechanic in it, then maybe it wasn't essential. <laughs> you know, maybe you'd, you'd added a little bit too much Chrome over the top, but that's, you know, that's an interesting thing that I think a lot of, uh, game designers that I have, uh, worked with and friends that I've helped play test their games. Uh, one of the most difficult things has been, um, for me as a, especially as a play tester to find the right words to pointedly say something is a hurdle and a huge stumbling block without making it feel like I'm attacking the whole game construct. Um, I know I've, I've fallen short a couple times on that where they go, you just hate the whole game. I'm like, no, I don't. I just think this one way of resolving this, this combat or this action is, <laughs> is really, really hokey. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that gets difficult, but it sounds like you guys really have, have kind of built a, uh, a series of key relationships and, and you've also built that out of, out of former customers as well. Yeah, um, someone in particular that's really helped us out, um, a fellow named Benjamin Chi. Um, <laughs> he has been helping us a lot, and he's been proofreading all of our cards and our rule books and our components. And uh, he's been doing that for the past maybe two-ish years, and his name's always in the rule book as head editor. And uh, he has really saved our bacon because we are just... We're, we type rules and we think this makes sense. I played the game. I know what the rule should say. The rule's fine. And then he'll say, I haven't played the game and this sentence does not make sense. You need two previous sentences to lead up to this. And he's just had such a great mindset that's helped us as well as he's now heading up other projects within the company. Well, and I think that's the something that a lot of playtesters forget. And I know it kind of came out for us this week. Uh, doing some of our playtest work that 
that there's a point where you say, I'm glad everybody's enjoying playing this game. We now need to find our friends who haven't played the game and drag them into it <laughs> because because we're, we're not going to see, we can't see the forest for the trees. We, we've become so comfortable with the rules and all the changes and all the tweaks that it's secondhand to us. We don't know if it's, uh, if it's truly as intuitive as it needs to be. So I, I can... I can imagine the value of having a, a trusted agent you can bring in and go, okay, proofread it, make sure it makes sense and make sure that we're not uh, lacking a key, a key preface somewhere in there to, to any one of the rules. Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of fun because within the last year, people um, like Benjamin Shi that we've worked with, he went from editing himself to having other people that edit with him that he solely communicates with and they're an extra set of eyes. They may have other talents. They may understand other game systems and stuff. But he then compiles the whole list and then hands it to Sarah or I and says, here are the 300 edits for the rule book that you just gave us. And this is going to take you 10 hours to put in, but it's going to be well worth it. And so right. it's been kind of weird of a multi-tier system because as long as I've done DVG, it's always been... I'm working on a game or I'm working on a game with one other person. But now it's like there's battle pack creators that I'm kind of in charge of that Sarah's kind of in charge of. There's other games that are coming out that I'm kind of in charge of. And so it's like this whole web that's starting to build out of just people that I used to talk with on a friendly basis on Facebook. That's good. That has, that you have a, a cadre of people that you've, you've kind of generated uh, that, that our trusted agents and I, I know I sometimes overuse that term, but it's it's one of those things where you're you're trusting them with with giving you rudder steers, left and right rudder steers, as to where the game and where the rules and where where all of that is going to go. Um, so that's that's one of those things that it's it's pretty important. Well, you guys have told me that uh, you know also some of your business customers have have definitely become close friends and some of the uh, the things they've shown up and participated in. Yeah, um, we got married, me and Kevin, about six months ago, seven months ago now. And we invited a couple of our um, customers who have become friends and business uh, partners to our wedding. Um, most of them couldn't make it as a lot of our business friends are in Australia and other parts of, of the U.S. as well. Yeah. But a couple did get to make it. Um, Chuck Siegert, who's designing yeah. Zero Leader um, with his wife, his beautiful wife, Angel, uh, were able to make it, as well as our friend Dougie Wong, who lives in San Francisco, and his wife as well. They got to come to our wedding. So it was that's really great awesome. to meet them in person. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's a good thing. You know, especially now in this time with, you know, a lot of distancing and everything else, it's it's good to have games that feel a little bit more like community than just a, <laughs> a business relationship. Although uh, every time I look at my credit card bill, I'm like, well, let me see, how many times was dvg on it this month. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those things that uh, that it's it's always good to feel a little bit of a partnership and that you know as especially as a uh, as a game customer that you know your your money is going to an organization and a, and a game design corporation that that actually cares about people and not just about uh, churning out the product so that how have you guys uh, found the the public relations part of that of of balancing the the times when you've you've got to kind of be that that corporate face yet there's always at least from all of my interaction with you guys there's always such a a great interest in the individual gamers uh enjoyment uh and getting it right well, yeah do you want to take this? yeah um it's been tough definitely to find a balance between the personal and the business and 
we've crossed over a lot, I think, by using our personal Facebooks and stuff to answer a lot of questions. But that's how we try to separate it is the updates and the formal um, information always comes from Kickstarter or our, our, our work emails. That way, you know, that's kind of the formal updates and information that we send out. But then on Kickstarter, we make sure to manage all the groups and try to jump into all the questions and people posting their, um, what are they called? Shelfies now. Yeah, shelfies. <laughs> and we love seeing that and we love talking to people and saying, oh yeah, what was your favorite uh, soldier to use in Warfighter or, you know, asking questions about what they want to see next in our products. And we definitely uh, blur the lines, I think, of personal business, but it's yeah. fun because it's become a family you know, all these customers, they're people that care about us and we care about them and make us want to do better because there's faces to these, these people. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you, you know, as a, as a consumer, it's, it's funny for me to compare the Facebook and, um, you know, YouTube marketing and I'll, and I'll pitch you guys versus games, games workshop because it's kind of funny. So you guys are out there and you're like, Hey, here's what we're doing. Here's some things we're unboxing. And it may not be the slickest, fanciest video, but really, who cares? Because all we want to see is what the components look like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, I don't care if you can hire an artist who can do, you know, multi-layer animations. Don't worry. I, w- I want to see what's in the box. Um, but but the key to me is the difference in the messaging. Um, and that it's always so much about, hey, here's some cool things you're going to like, and here's some neat things. Whereas I feel like, you know, Games Workshop's messaging lately has been, hey, give us some money and maybe we'll give you some limited edition miniatures in October. <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's like Kickstarter, but with no reward. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm paying you now for something I'm not going to see for a long time. And it's really not something I need or want. So it, it's I think it's interesting on the, in the games world to see how some companies have changed and evolved um, and other companies are still stuck in, you know, what some of us call kind of the 1990s. Uh, mindset that sure you can you can interact with your customers via this crazy thing called the internet, um, but they they don't really they still don't have the transparency, which which I think you guys definitely do, which in some ways is good, um, but in some ways I mean it it does allow people kind of a peek behind the curtain, and it's got to be at least probably a little stressful to you all. <laughs> yeah, it's um I was gonna say on my end I met. I tend to comment a lot on Facebook of somebody will have a question about a game or post up an AAR of something that they played. And I always respond to them as if I were, I don't know, a friend of mine posting up a video game that they just played of, oh, wow, that's really cool. Because I am excited when other people play our games and it has led to me sending friend requests. And I tend to share a lot of like silly pictures and memes and mac and cheese type photos because Sarah <laughs> loves mac and cheese. And I tag her in that stuff. And then people like work people will then comment on that saying, oh, my daughter loves mac and cheese too. Isn't that funny? And it's like, we're, we were talking about making a game five minutes ago. And now you're commenting on my wife's photo about mac and cheese. <laughs> And it's just like such a weird, yeah, we're now friends. This is what we do. Well, so so I have to ask because my own social media feed has been bizarre in the last two months. Has it gotten a little uncomfortable at times, though, now <laughs> in in uh, at least the uh, the era of coronavirus and yeah, COVID-19, but- the way you sometimes <laughs> go, maybe I don't always want to be Facebook friends with everybody that I'm <laughs> business associated with. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've made a... Um, I wouldn't say strict, but we do our best not to have anything political on any of our Facebooks because that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about games and to, 
you know, post mac yeah. and cheese memes and whatever else, you know. <laughs> so we've done our best to avoid anything, uh, either commenting on other people's stuff or our own, just because it doesn't do any good. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's the tough thing these days is to figure out the fine balance. I mean, for me, it's extremely difficult because I have uh, a lot of friends who I, I really value their intellectual opinion. And so even when we're on opposite sides of a discussion, they'll post something and I'll I'll feel a need to weigh in. And then I'll realize that the discussion between my friends and I is providing maybe too much information <laughs> to, to everybody else who, who knows me uh, either in a, in a photography way or in a, in a game, uh, game organization kind of way. So it's, it's one of those, those bizarre things about social media. And, and I think it's, it's a challenge we all have. And, and I like the way you guys have done it. So it's, I'll be honest, it's really nice to see the level of interaction of, of you all in either specific DVG game groups or in solitaire gaming groups or, or whatever. Um, it seems like, uh, like you guys are at least out there uh, commenting, responding, and and providing a face to a company that um, that could be faceless and could just ship games and ask you to, to give them your money, <laughs> as many do. Um, but I, but I think it's a lot more helpful than than what some uh, some organizations do with only their their official media outlet. Yeah, and I've always felt that if you want to go, if you want to find political stuff, you can find it. But I just come to my feed, and all my friends will share it. With you. <laughs> yeah, along with their opinions too. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't really care for posting that stuff, and I figure that we might as well put some positivity and share some tasty how to make this meal or how to do this set up a cute date or you know a mac and cheese type meme. Yeah, I think yeah. those are a lot more fun and people enjoy that type of stuff. More. See, I, I had this brilliant idea this last week. I was going to take a lot of the uh, the plate openings from Robert Asprin's Another Fine Myth series and start putting those fake quotes out in my Facebook feed because they're all generally pretty funny quotes that he wrote. Uh, and, and the problem is my friends who haven't read Another Fine Myth or Myth Adventures or any one of those, they thought I was being serious. <laughs> and so there was a little bit of everybody commenting on these. And I'm like, if you really think George Custer said, you know, do we have a plan? No, no, that wasn't anything said by, by George <laughs> Custer. But, you know, it's, it's funny, things like that. When even my problem is even when I try to be witty and try to post like a cat photo out there or something, there's yeah. always find that one person who's going to take it wrong. And, yeah. And it, it gets frustrating. But, you know, that's, that's, I think, one of the interesting things about social media and gaming and the the kind of personalities that are in gaming, because I'll be honest, I, I deal in three very different worlds. So I have a, my day job that is very government centric and very um, US and foreign military centric and, and those kind of personalities. Then I have my aviation photography world, which is like gaming grognards, but stranger. <laughs> and, and then I have gaming and, I, and I'll be honest, I think, I think in the war gaming and miniatures community and things like that that I run in, um, it's a lot more accepting. And it's really funny because I, I really enjoy interacting a lot with them more than, you know, some of these people that I served on active duty for 20 years with. I'm like, <laughs> I really don't want to see what you're posting on Facebook. I really want the funny cat memes and apparently mac and cheese photos. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess the scary thing is now if you post those, my wife's going to see them and she loves mac and cheese and this is just going to create this whole problem for me. So, you know, this, this may not work well. I may have to have to put the versions over in their own little Facebook group and hide it from my wife because uh, that, that might not work out well. So who knows? Yeah. Well, we post a lot of cat memes too. Well, and, and that's the funny thing. So I, 
I thankfully don't post my cats that much, but I will happily go out and find a cat meme any day and respond to everybody's uh, pain and angst and everything else on, on social media via a cat meme. And, and I'll be honest, I think the Lead Pursuit uh, podcast team doesn't know how to take me when I do that. They're, they're, they're a little too straight laced for that, but that's all right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about you know the community itself. So, so I'm not a dvg community person i'm getting back into dvg games and so it's kind of funny um so so how have you guys really built a community and 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 you know got the word about the games out there do you do you have people that demo the games at at certain events do you do you ship stuff out and say okay we're going to send it to a couple game stores see what they think and they're going to be kind of our our face for the game how how does that work for dvg well i'll uh I'll make this real simple. The answer is Sarah. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a mix. Um, we have a few customers who regularly go to conventions in their area for us, and they demo. And we have a pretty good system of if you're willing to demo games for us, um, send us some photos, and then we'll send you maybe a product to help you demo and just kind of this good relationship of mutually benefiting each other. Um, we also have just... I'd say most of our marketing and kind of getting the community involved is kind of what you talked about earlier, just being really transparent. Um, I think that has grown our community the most because people want to stick around if they know what to expect and they know what's coming and okay, yeah, it's delayed, but at least you're telling us something. <laughs> well, I think there's also a little consistency in the product because once you've once you've played a leader product or played a warfighter product, you generally know, okay, I, I know what the next expansion or a different game in that series is going to be like. Um, and, and I'll be honest, the, the stressor for me is to see things on the DVG site that I'm like, huh, I've never played anything in that series, but I wonder what it's like. <laughs> Do I go to Board Game Geek? Do I go watch the video? I'm like, I'm just going to end up buying it at some point. Put it, on, put it on the list down below the next set of miniatures I should be painting. But, uh, but you know, make a plan to go try that. Because I, th- I think that's one of the difficult things for me. Um, and maybe it just is the era that I that I come from is I still have to see these things and, and have a frame of reference. I can watch a lot of unboxings, but man, sometimes those still can't sell me the way going to a convention, seeing the product there and going, absolutely. And, you know, I use the example uh, for the lead pursuit team, you know, how we got involved in Blood Red Skies and and why we did so much with, you know, Dust 1947 as well was not because we looked on the internet and said, oh, those miniatures look kind of cool, but because we're sitting there at Adepticon and it's either John Russell with Warlord or Paolo himself for Dust, you know, showing us the miniatures, talking about the fluff, pushing miniatures around the table and we go, Wow, this is kind of cool. <laughs> this, this is a lot cooler than the other systems we saw. So um, that obviously is a is an interesting way for you guys to have to interact. Have you found some some people that demo uh, recurrently for you? I mean, you said you have a few people that you send things out with. Does it does it seem to hit enough of the big conventions? Um, yeah, it hits pretty well at a, a lot of their local conventions. I mean, we're always looking for more. Um, we used to go to some local conventions as well, but as the company's grown, we've had less and less time, unfortunately, for that fun. Um, so we're always looking for more ways to get into conventions. It's just, um, from what we've experienced, going to conventions can be a bit of a pricey experience. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I can't imagine that. trying to trying to attend a convention and just think about it as a as a, a game designer, marketer, 
kind of person and then forget about all the other cool things you can spend money on you. How many of your games did you sell? Uh, zero, but I bought a lot of the cool stuff. Yeah, so. exactly. Spend more money than you made. Yeah, yeah. A lot of our distributors, though, do attend the bigger conventions like Alliance and ACD and um, a few others like that. And so we've seen our products at a lot of conventions, um, maybe not demoed as much as we'd like, but they're there. And that's what we hear a lot from customers, too, is we got to see, you know, we saw Warfighter on the shelf or someone was playing it in the room, in the demo room or whatever. So we're always glad to hear that our products are getting out there, even if we can't, unfortunately, get out there. Yeah. And I think that's also kind of the interesting dynamic of a solo or even slightly co-op game is that a co-op game, at least, is a little bit easier to demo, but it's sometimes kind of hard to demo a solo game in that sense, because it's not like you're playing opposite of somebody and there's a... There's a uh, direct interaction as the guy kind of standing there walking you through each of the steps, but um, but still something interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And funnily enough, um, Chuck Siegert also demos. He goes to a lot of conventions. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just really weird because at one point Sarah and I realized he was talking to both of us <laughs> and he was talking to me all about uh, zero leader uh, and how to get that going and what the components should be and whatever. And he was also talking with Sarah about there's an upcoming convention. What should I bring? How should I do that? You know, can I get a banner, that type of stuff? <laughs> and so it's just like, wow, he's, he has a presence of mind to be able to talk with both of us about both of those very different subjects. I remember us jokingly fighting of, wait, you stop messaging Chuck. I need him to respond yeah. to me. Yeah. Stop yeah. That's that's a valuable person to have on your team. Yeah. We'll do that. He's great. He's fun to work with. <laughs> well, so I've been trying to avoid talking about it. I've, I've been looking seriously at the clock on the podcast counter here saying, I'm not going to talk about Zero Leader. I'm not going to talk about Zero Leader. We're going to talk about everything else. Okay, let's freaking talk about Zero Leader. <laughs> let's talk about it. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to because uh, it's going to it's going to cause me to want to pitch in when it comes out but but okay give me the big pitch for zero leader why zero leader why did why did we decide to do this well it was um we came out with Corsair and um it did pretty well on Kickstarter and and geez I just keep saying his name Chuck Seagert um <laughs> actually backed it at a level that allowed him to name one of the pilots and he named an F4F Wildcat And he enjoyed the game so much. And he said, you know, there's a whole opposite side of Corsair. There's the events of World War II from the Japanese side, the Japanese Air Force and Navy side. And those are rarely uh, discussed in games. I want to do that. And he sent me this like big old paragraph saying, here's what I want to do. Here's my general timeline. And I said, that's great. Talk to me when you've done some research and we'll get back and forth and we'll get this going. And I was expecting it to go like 90% of the people who have messaged me about games saying, I have this great idea, but uh, it's a lot of work to do. (laughs) And he then messaged me back like a month later and said, I've done all the research. I know all the planes that the Japanese Air Force and Navy used, and I want to make this the most realistic leader cool game that we can make. And him and I have spent quite a few hours on the phone going over ideas and how to implement and show that, like, um, the Japanese military generally had fewer supplies, fewer men, fewer resources than the Americans. But they had a lot of spirit that kind of made up for that. Well, and and I'm going to go ahead and get a little out over my skis and say I'm sure it also probably becomes difficult to play a campaign as the Japanese because after a while you're throwing bad men and bad equipment at at progressively better U.S. equipment. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's um, we've set up the game so that way, at the beginning in 1941-42, it is a breeze. It is easy peasy lemon squeezy to complete those campaigns. Oh look, buffaloes again. Oh yeah. gee, what are we gonna do with those? Let's just shoot them all down. Yeah. Oh, the tomahawks, the warhawks. It's like yeah, the yeah. zeros could spin circles around those. Right. And um, and then throughout the years, we slowly tinkered with a dozen different gears to make it slightly more difficult. So it's not like in 43, you're playing normal. And then 44, it's okay, subtract two from all your die rolls. You know, that just like hitting a player with a hammer. We've done a dozen little tweaks here and there. So that way, each campaign you play, you feel the difficulty increasing, but you don't know where. You don't know why. You just know that more of your pilots are falling out of the sky. And um, yeah, we did a lot of research. He did uh, mostly Chuck, and came up with the airplanes. Came up with some new stats for the airplanes. Um, so you played uh, Corsair or Thunderbolt, right? I've played Thunderbolt. My buddy has the copy of Corsair that I bought from you guys because I figured if I ended up with two DVG games on my table, I would be in the doghouse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we decided um, he wanted to put in a robustness stat to show right. how tough these airplanes are, and especially to show that, like, the Japanese aircraft, like the Zero, had very thin uh, material going around their wings in the frame of the airplane, but they made more um, sturdy aircraft as the war go on, went on. And so now aircraft can adjust how much damage they suffer when they're attacked based on how much, uh, what the robustness is. And then, oh, nice. yeah. And airplanes also have a maneuvering stat that allows them to more easily maneuver around um, the enemy bandits, in this case, the Americans. And it's just a whole new feel of now each pilot feels unique and different and the aircraft they fly feel different from another aircraft, which makes sense because you want a zero to feel different from a Tony. Well, and that I, I'm going to pick on your dad in absentia here. So <laughs> that if there was, if there was one thing that frustrated me out of the original Hornet leader and th the original Thunderbolt Apache was that, other airplanes really only felt different in the loads or rolls they had. Right. So it was, you didn't really have a feel that, that the action of an F-14 was any different other than it shot different missiles and, uh, you know, and it, and it didn't feel different than the F-18 in some of those ways. But, you know, once again, what was the focus of the game? It wasn't necessarily the dogfight. It was, I am going to um, blaze through these fighters. I'm going to get to a target, blaze through the defenses, and then hope I make it home and don't get some unlucky event that causes me to lose a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so, and I also have to ask this, I mean, the, the, the victory conditions and the way you win, I say win in, in air quotes, um, in, in a lot of the leader games, most of these missions are, in a sense, foregone conclusions. The campaign is either going to be a, a, a dramatic defeat for you <laughs> or you're going to claw your way to victory. Um, did you have to do anything different for the Japanese? Because unfortunately, I mean, you, you, you have a side that is either, like you said, you're, it's blazingly easy in the early part of the war, and then it's a foregone conclusion they're going to lose at, at, towards the later campaigns. Yeah. Um, what we did to let the players know is the early campaigns have an introductory or a standard difficulty. And then starting in like 43, they start to go to like standard to um, advance. And then 44 and 45, they're mostly just expert. So we let the player know 
that these later war campaigns are just going to be more difficult on you. So that way a new time player doesn't start up in 1945, get demolished, and then say, this game's too hard. It's no, no, no. Play it yeah, four yeah. years prior. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you have to sculpt the, the the scope of it any? I mean, to to say, okay, we know they're going to lose the entire air engagement, but for the focus of zero leaders, is it possible for the zeros to come out on top? <laughs> well, we... Um, the plan is that the game has a difficulty curve that increases throughout the years. So a smart player who's playing um, both tactically within the that mission as well as strategically of which pilots do I take in and out for this day versus I'll need them more for future days can play and beat all of the campaigns. But as the campaigns go on, they're going to need a little bit more luck on their side. Uh, if this die roll goes either way, I either shoot down the enemy Corsair or he'll flip me around and shoot me down on his turn. And right. so it's, um, but in like 41, 42, it's, you're just spinning circles around those buffaloes and tomahawks. Yeah, we've run into an interesting similarity in, in working on some of the Vietnam play testing is that the problem we have is we get to a point in the Vietnam air war that so many things external to the airplanes are deadly, whether it's radar guided anti-aircraft fire, whether it's uh, surface to air missiles that uh, you end up in a point for us where, where in our proposal, we had to say we're, we have to assume certain things happen outside the scope of the battle we're fighting. Because if I fly in there and I fire, you know, a Sam at every single one of these airplanes across the board, the odds of the player having any airplanes by the end of turn three, <laughs> pretty small. Um, so, so we've we uh, we found ourselves having to say, all right, what's the purpose of the game? For people to have fun, for people to get a flare of, of air combat. So let's not make it a hundred percent historically accurate because we're not simulating the whole strike package. We're simulating four of the F fours or six of the F fours. Um, so I think there's always an interesting compromise when you sit there and you say the the foregone conclusion may be like in our example that. An airplane was going to get shot down. Let's just make sure it's not one of the players' airplanes. <laughs> let's let's make sure it's something that that to them is expendable. Um, you know, so so that way there's not a a feeling that all right, why have I why have I built all these aircrew and pilots up just to get them uh, get them bagged in this one scenario? Because unlike the leader games, that that's part of the game. That's part of of managing your aircraft and managing your pilots. Um, it, it's not so in Blood Red Skies. So it's in a sense we unfortunately have a little bit more emotional baggage that I can't just. Uh, pick off elements of the strike package as they head in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's fun. I'm learning a lot about the history of the struggles, basically that the Japanese right. um, military went through of how difficult it was and how they had not planned on facing such a formidable force and just the turnaround time that the Americans had of you blew up one of our carriers. Don't worry. Three days later, we'll have a new one. Exactly. And the yeah. Japanese yeah. are like, we started this war with six and we're not getting any more. And you just destroyed it. That's it. And it's just such a weird um, it's such a weird feeling from Corsair of you feel like how America normally feels like in Hornet or Phantom of it's you're launching missiles and you got radar guided and you're dropping bombs and smart bombs and just the goal is to get as many victory points as possible. Whereas in Zero, half the goal is getting victory points. Half the goal is keeping your guys alive so that they can get you victory points down. Right. Right. Well, that's interesting. That's a that's a 
interesting take on the model and the and the way the interaction goes because I haven't I'm still bad. I haven't opened my Phantom Leader copy. That's a goal for the weekend. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it'll be interesting to, to play through that where unlike Hornet Leader, where I really don't want to lose anybody with Phantom Leader, I know I'm going to have to go into the mindset that people are going to get bagged by Sam's. People are not going to get picked up. You know, it's it's not necessarily Hornet Leader playing Gulf War, playing uh, like in the old one, the Central American uh, scenario. So where you show up, you're like, ooh, MiG-21s. <laughs> yeah. I'm so scared. Um, you know, that I think it'll be uh, interesting to see how you guys um, handle some of those things in Zero Leader. Because like I said, it's, it becomes a very asymmetric uh, fight in the big picture. Um, even though individual dogfights may not may not have been that way. Yeah, but it's I think most importantly it's fun. I really enjoy working on Zero. I enjoy talking with Chuck about Zero. And it's it's a learning opportunity. This is the first game that I've been fully in charge of that it's he's just talking to me i'm talking to him and at some point we're going to have a printed game and that's going to be in the dvg legacy so there's a little bit of pressure a little bit of anxiety with this of let's make this the best dang game that we can and so far it's coming out really good and he's been posting up uh, photos of it every few weeks about new updates and new pilots or campaigns or hey we just added in the oka or you know whatever yeah, I've been really interested in following some of those things, and I've tried to not pay too much attention because it'll just make me want to play the game sooner rather than later. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to try to ignore some of those. Well, what are some of the other things you have in the pipeline? I know we've talked about Vietnam. Is there a are there are there some other expansions going on in there for other systems? Yeah. So right now, what we've been working on during our home isolation <laughs> is um, expansions for a couple of the leader games. We've done a Phantom expansion, a Hornet expansion, and an Israeli Air Force expansion. And we're just about done with them. We've just sent them yeah. off to be proofed by Benjamin Chi. And um, we hope to run a Kickstarter for that maybe um, early June, I think is what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, we wanted to wait, obviously, a while to do another Kickstarter and let people... Uh, financially. Thank you for letting my bank account recover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that's also why we wanted to have our next Kickstarter be something a little on the smaller side of just a couple of leader expansions rather than um, the project we're going to do after that, which is probably Warfighter Fantasy. Yeah, um, but, or Warfighter Vietnam. Yeah, depending on which one gets done first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the leader expansions are going to be big, and I think everyone will look forward to that. People have wanted leader expansions for a while, and we just did a couple for Tiger and... Um, Thunderbolt. Yeah. Right, right. So we decided to do more. <laughs> well, so, and it's kind of funny when, uh, when Dan was on and he said, you know, warfighter fantasy, it's, it's easy for me to wrap my brain around warfighter, you know, military contractor, warfighter, yeah. <laughs> counterterrorism, warfighter, Vietnam, even I'm like, okay, whatever we can, we can do small unit actions and it's not, it's not truly skirmish. It's small unit actions. Yeah. It's, it's one of those weird things. It fits in its own niche. So, Tell me Warfighter Fantasy. Is it a dungeon crawl? What is it? What, how, how does fantasy and Warfighter mix? Well, the, the, the dungeon crawling is very similar. And I know this is going to sound weird to people who played Warfighter. It's very similar mechanically to shooting um, terrorists in the Middle East. It's still has its to-hit role, it still has its cover role. Um, monsters as well as the hero have um, hit locations because most monsters have armor 
Um, at least in some places, uh, like a beetle may have extra armor on its back, but its face and legs are more unarmored. The heroes have armor. Um, and so it, it adds a whole new feel to the game when you roll and you're trying to hit a specific area on this giant beetle or whatever. And you know that he has a cover five in his on a D20, maybe like his six to 12. But you know that he has a cover two at where his head is. And so now you're deciding, do I want to make a big old heavy strike? At which point I'm going to do a lot of, I have a really good chance to hit, but I don't, I won't be breaking his cover that well. Or do I want to do a more precise strike that's a little harder to hit, but I can adjust where I hit him after I make the roll. And so like some monsters, it's just clobber him over the head with a big sword. But other monsters, you want maybe your thief with a dagger to come out first because the thief can better aim where she's hitting and won't do as much damage. But you won't do any damage if the fighter just keeps hitting the beetle in its armor. That's interesting. So kind of taking the the burst rate and ammunition choices and kind of turning that into weapon skill or proficiency or or things like that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's strong okay. attacks, normal attacks, and fast attacks. And each of them um, adjust where both how many rolls you make as well as what you need to hit, what penetration you have with that type of attack. And so you start getting into decisions of, I want to get the big great sword. It doesn't hit that well, but it has a high penetration or something. Or maybe the axe does more damage and an equal amount of penetration. And the club does huge penetration, but very little uh, chance to hit. And so now you're kind of waffling between which of these weapons do I want to bring? And there's NPS and squatties, which are called henchmen and something else. (laughs) I haven't worked on the game in a while. But um, so you can bring them along and they'll have their own weapons and gear and skills, just like normal warfighter. And so you can have a wizard, a thief, a fighter, and a cleric all playing with just one player soldier because the rest are just simple die rolls or maybe they have a weapon type thing. That way you can have a full party without all the headache of it. Yeah, well, I think that's that's kind of cool that you can step between genres uh, so easily in the warfighter system because, you know, to be quite honest, there's times that, that I get tired of aerial war. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, you know, and, and I had that day uh, going back through between Board Game Geek and Tabletop Simulator, looking at all the old micro games and things like that. And uh, Roger G- Garish and I were talking about it and he said, you know, hey, when's the last time you played Melee or Olympia War, any one of the Olympia, Holy War, any one of those? And it's and it's kind of funny that it's nice to have a solo system that is familiar, but you really totally change what you're playing. And so you're not necessarily playing shooting terrorists, you're now playing uh, either doing, you know, Warfighter Vietnam, Warfighter Fantasy, things like that. I think that'll be really interesting. Exactly. That's that's the goal is that we take what everyone loves about the fantasy worlds they know and everything they love about the Warfighter system that we've so painstakingly made into so many different series and smash them together. And, you know, sometimes you just need to go kill a dragon instead of a <laughs> terrorist. Any, any plans to cool, to license any cool IP from anybody to, uh, to make some specific uh, Warfighter fantasy expansions? <laughs> we, we wish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, really and I just... Cool. We wish, but no, not at this if time. We, oh, yeah, that, that's always one of the funny things uh, for me is that... Anytime we've talked about uh, Blood Red Skies and and Andy and I have sat back and said, you know, what would be really interesting? It's it's always funny to find the 
the what's the cool IP you can get and then approach those people and they go, ah, oh, yeah, I don't think so. That's a lot of money. So that's all right. We've, we've approached a few people to do yeah. a few of those types of projects. Yeah. <laughs> of well, but you know, that's, that's also one of the things that most people just go, oh yeah, it's, it's just a simple licensing agreement, no. right? Is what everyone, <laughs> external to the game world says, and you guys know it's different. Yeah. We actually, um, a few years ago, uh, Dan messaged, or didn't message, he emailed Fox about getting a aliens license mm-hmm. to make a warfighter aliens but it was and that would have been just the coolest thing ever but with the legality and the contracts and the here's what you can do here's what you can't do here's what you're allowed to do you can never insinuate this and this is how much it's going to cost you <laughs> right and right. just this huge amount up front at which point you can't use kickstarter or crowdfunding or anything that was the big thing yeah and so it's just like it if we were a hundred person company who had you know all the money in the world it'd be really cool but as we're a four person company it's we we're not at the level to be talking with Fox about Warfighter Aliens. Absolutely. <laughs> as disappointing as that is, I understand. Yeah, I mean, the Versons are big Aliens fans, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would have loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would definitely get me into playing Warfighter. And, and it's not that I don't want to. It's funny, I, like you guys know, I've got it on the down, the DLC for, uh, for Tabletop Simulator. I just... I've had so many other things that I'm like, I really need to go figure it out. So I paid money for this DLC. I should go play it rather than just looking at the rules. So it's like like everything else, even digital ones and zeros sometimes sit in the closet of shame for a while before they get used. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been talking for a while. Is there Are there any other projects or any other efforts that you all are going through that you want to talk about before we wrap this up tonight? Um, well, there is... Um, some of the potential projects down the line that we have, uh, we, of course, Zero Leader with Chuck Seeger. We're planning on kickstarting soon, getting going soon. Um, I also have Sop with Fokker Leader with Ian Martin, a World War One um, leader series game, except a little bit more nitty gritty on the tactical side of like maintaining your aircraft and stuff like that. Um we also have with James Garton and Abrams leader in development that would use the similar rule, similar rules from Tiger Sherman, except in modern day nineties era um, Abrams running across Iraq. That sounds good. That sounds pretty cool. Anything uh, uh, customer service or social media wise, uh, Sarah, that we need to know is going on. Um, I guess it's always good to know what projects are almost done being printed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, since you're either the bearer of good news or bad news, there's nothing in between. (laughs) Yeah, so coming from the printer, actually leaving the printer in about 10 days, we have our Battle Pack Wave 1, which is, I think, about a dozen different expansions for World War II uh, II and modern day Warfighter, as well as um, uh, For What Remains, which was done by David Thompson, who is another one of our outside designers that we absolutely love working with. Yeah, Uh, He did Pavlov's House and Castle Eater as well, and he's working on another game for us. um, probably for fall or winter this year. So those should be coming in. If they leave the printer in about 10 days, they'll be here probably mid-June. And then after that, we have Fleet Commander Nimitz, Tiger Leader, and Thunderbolt Apache Leader all being reprinted with expansions. Um, and that's probably another two months away. Um, okay. And, as well as Battle Pack Wave 2. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. 
Well, thanks for taking some time to talk uh, with me on the Lead Pursuit podcast. I, I appreciate it. It's always good to uh, to get out of our comfort zone and talking about the games and game systems that uh, that really we've spent a lot of time you know beating the bushes about for Blood Red Skies, for uh, Bolt Action, those things. Because uh, I'll be honest, I enjoy uh, playing a lot of y'all's games. I unfortunately don't haven't devoted as much time as I'd like to. Um, but uh, now that we're playing a lot more solo games, at least for a while, yeah. Um, I think it's a it's a cool opportunity to get in and uh, and get involved with some of those games. Definitely. And it was great talking to you too today. We enjoyed yeah. hanging out. Absolutely. Town. You guys are welcome anytime, even if our uh, our listeners roll their eyes and go, we don't want to talk about fantasy and we don't want, we, we don't care about warfighter fantasy. I, I care about it. So you can listen to it on the podcast. <laughs> Tough luck. Well, thanks again. And we'll uh, talk to you all later. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, Brett and I are back with some listener questions that we have pulled off of the Blood Red Skies Ready Room. Well, let's talk about my least favorite one first, Brett, and then we'll get to your least favorite because I'm running the podcast. (laughs) So let's talk about swarm tactics. What do you think about swarm tactics? I think they suck. I saw a comment on there and on the, it was like a thread or something on the Ready Room about how that works. And uh, yeah, I could see that being a real pain in the butt where you're just booming people out with these low skill guys. I haven't yeah. encountered that myself, but I could see how that that tactic could be something that might rear its ugly head at a tournament setting or something like that. Yeah, I think there's there are some some standard things we see that people play the swarm tactics early on. Um, some people never graduate past them. I'll, I'll be honest, especially in the competitive area, because uh, in other games it's it's still a thing to have to defeat. So, like if you play X-wing, I guess swarm tactics are still a, a big thing there. Don't know. Don't play X-Wing much. Um, not at all competitively. But uh, the the thing is in Blood Red Skies, a lot of people kind of move away from it because if you have a bad set of roles, it can kind of turn on you. Because uh, what I'll say is it's, it's a tough tactic to defeat. Um, it, simply because when you have a swarm of pilot skill two aircraft, uh, they move last, so all of your fancy guys have to move across the board. Uh, then they move, and they pick one air, one or two airplanes, and they gang up, and they roll a shit ton of dice. So it's kind of like playing 40K against the Tau. It's kind of weird. Uh, but <laughs> It kind of sounds like the way I play my 109s, regardless of pilot skill level. <laughs> <laughs> and then fly the hell out of there if I'm smart. Well, you know, the, the thing is, it's, it is a viable tactic. And I say that not because I want people to go out and fly the swarm, but because it can be difficult to defend against. Uh, there are ways by keeping some of your more experienced pilots back and, and how you stagger your aircraft. Uh, you can make things a little bit tougher because they still have to knock you out of your advantage. So I always tell people, if you are facing a swarm, move slowly across the board so that you definitely get to an advantage state with everybody that you can uh, before they become a factor. Um, And oh, by the way, if you end up with a swarm behind you and you're playing scenario one or two, uh, you didn't set your board set up very well. Uh, but, But if you at least have them coming at you, move slow, get everyone up to advantage, and then they really have to rely on you failing your maneuver checks. So if you fail your maneuver check, odds are generally uh, it's obviously going to be one of your lower skill guys. So the way you can defeat that is by leading with your high skill guys because they're going to move last anyway, the swarm is, because they're all pilot skill too. So 
you can move your higher skill guy out there first. And if you if you figure out the distance right, I mean, if you have let's say a standard eighteen inch uh, spread, if someone's playing a competitive game, uh, you know, you can you can use your first quick move to get in and start knocking people down uh, via out maneuver. Now the problem is you are out and you are exposed. They're not going to tell you. They're just going to rely on you to be at an advantage level lower than them and start shooting you. So what I, that I would not use Doug's standard dive into the attack. You know where I where I give up being advantaged and and drop down to neutral. I would first turn move move slow, see how they move. Second turn, if you can without diving and without losing all your advantage, move into a position to start knocking their advantage level down. Then do so. Uh, otherwise, you kind of got to turtle up and kind of make them come to you, um, so that uh, that they can't continually pick a whole bunch of aircraft to uh, to gang up on because they're going to try to take deflection shots because they don't want to take head-ons because head-ons means they're going to risk getting a boom shit. They want low probability of kill deflections so they can just rack up a bunch of boom shits, never shoot anybody down, but boom shit you out of the game quickly. So, hmm. um, you know, it's funny because Steve and I have been working so hard on this campaign thing. And now we're, you know, actually trying to create a, um, a you know, a shareable document that reflects what we've evolved, but it, it's informed a lot of my thought process on tactics and stuff. And, um, I think, we didn't intentionally do this, but I'm sure there were times early in our campaign where we sort of exploited uh, either uh, the pilot skill one way or the other. Either you know try to flood the board with as many pilots as we can by putting in as many low skill guys as we could because you know it's point based, or kind of did the other thing. I know there were a lot of games I ran where you know I wanted to put as many um, high skill guys in there as I could, so I just you know kind of worked that angle. And we didn't didn't really think about it beyond that. We were just filling up the points, right, for our for our list before each game. But the more games we played, we started thinking, you know, when we start writing up this campaign thing, we ought to probably put some kind of limiter on that. And what we've come to is um, when we build our elements for a scenario, every everybody on the duty roster has um, a specific position, right? So you, and I'll use American terminology. You'll have your your squadron commander or a I guess it's squadron commander in, in the U.S. Air Force uh, back then. Uh, but then your element leader and then your wingmen, right, the lowest rank guys. So that would be kind of commensurate with, like, your element leader would be like a pilot skill three. He's probably going to he, he, probably pilot skill three, might be pilot skill four, but he has that designated position. So in our, in our roster, if you will, we have maybe three elements led by an element leader. Each one has, like, three wingmen. And um, when we now field a force for a game if i'm going to put that element leader on the table because like let's say maybe he's really attractive because he's a pilot skill four or pilot skill three so he's one of my more advanced guys and i really want to make sure he's on the board if i put him on the board he has to be accompanied by one of his designated wingmen who's likely going to be a pilot skill too and the same thing's going to happen for the next element leader. so i can't what i mean by that is i can't then put two of my highest skill guys and not put low skill guys and conversely i can't put just wingmen out there like a swarm for a you know kind of approach because i'd have to that wingman only gets to come when his element leader comes and i think that's kind of a cool narrative uh way to do it and i think our you said our games will be more balanced in that regard but uh, it's funny we're talking about that swarm tactic because i think we became almost sensitive to it just noticing the way we were playing like oh you know what we probably shouldn't be allowed to do that whether it was one way yeah, or the I th- other. I think there's going to be some some optional, I say optional, they're going to be 
probably mandatory rules in either the 172nd scale rule set that we call Big Red Skies. Uh, they may be in Midway, um, but some mandatory maximum squadron sizes. And I think it's going to end up being eight. I think there was a debate between was, is it eight or is it 10? But the purpose is to to keep people from having a both a large boom chit generation capability and a boom chit absorbing capability. Because if you think about it, when you have eight aircraft, it's going to take quite a while for those guys to get boom chitted out unless you start attriting airplanes down. So the uh, long story short, there's a couple ways to get around it. Uh, generally, my answer is if you play somebody who likes to play swarm tactics more than once, you just stop playing them. Uh, <laughs> it's a come on, grow up, join the rest of us. Uh, but uh, trust me, I understand. I understand people like to play competitively and uh, don't necessarily play historical formations, just like they don't necessarily paint historical, uh, you know, styles of aircraft and stuff like that. So to each his own. Um, if anyone else knows other tactics that work, please share that with us. We've had a little bit of a discussion, but we're always open to talking about more tactics and more ways to defeat the swarm. Now. Your least favorite rules exploit. Uh, I, I was surprised about this one. Tell me, uh, tell me what happened in your Scenario Seven games. Oh man! So in our campaign, my campaign with Steve, he and I have played Scenario Seven a bunch of times. It, it's not the odds aren't high. It's not the highest odd thing to roll for it to come up. But just luck of the dice, we've played that mission probably more than anything else in our campaign. Out of twelve games, I think we've played it like five times. Anyway, uh, it always went kind of like. It's always gone before, you know, bombers flying across the table and me doing my best to try to shoot them down before they get to the target. But uh, Steve, being a wily coyote, figured out, you know what? What if I just put my bombers in high cover and fly them around the board in high cover until they're as close to the target on the far table edge and then bring them on? So in one turn, they're dropping bombs, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what the F? There's no way that could be legal. I mean, Andy Chambers himself would not allow that. (laughs) Wait a minute. Yeah, uh, oops. Well, yeah, no discredit to Steve. I mean, he's just a smart guy, and I think he was like, I don't think he looked at it like an exploit. He's like, hey, you know, what, can I do that? And I'm like, yeah, why not? Try it. Let's see. And it worked. Maybe it almost worked too well because I kind of was like, dang, you know, I remember thinking targets were hard to to destroy completely. Yeah, well, uh, when you're not on the damn board, they're hard to destroy. I mean, when you're on the board, they're hard to destroy. When you're not, they're they're easy to destroy because you've got one turn that you're going to be shot at before you hit the target. Yeah, it was a lot of Jeez. turns with no airplanes on the table, which was kind of Yeah, okay, guess what? Yeah, if all your aircraft are in high cover, I'm going to consider you tabled. You can go home now, Steve. But, but uh, we asked Andy, and what did Andy say? Andy said he... And, intended for uh, that to be uh, something you could do. So, Damn it, Andy. You're supposed to take my <laughs> side, not Steve's side. Yeah. So so Andy himself said, well, yeah, that, that there's no problem with laden aircraft being in high cover. Um, okay, Andy, I, I love you like a brother. Thanks for designing Blood Red Skies. I am not allowing laden aircraft in any of my scenarios <laughs> into high cover. You will fight your way across the board and you will fight your way back out. Come on, grow a pair. Um, no, I, I can understand it. So the part of the reasoning behind it, uh, as Andy explained, was if you wanted to have the big dogfight raging in the middle and the bombers not have to fly through the dogfight, they fly around in high cover. Uh, it still takes them, you know, nine inches of movement a turn, I believe, nine or eight. I always forget. Nine, nine. I think. Yeah, yeah, nine inches. And uh, so it still is going to take them a while to get there. They're actually moving faster than they normally would, which also kind of uh, bothers me a little bit. And then they pop out. And so 
if he's a smart guy, he puts his all his high coverage shits right in the corner of, his, yeah. of the far table. Yeah. So you know they, they they're immediately going they're they're immediately heading towards me nine inches. Yeah. You know, yeah. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. So well, so so he places them autumn. He doesn't even have to move them down the board. He places them already right there in high cover on that board edge. Yeah. And in scenario seven, he's only required to put one element in in uh, on the table. So the game starts out and he's got one. He's got like two airplanes on a table yeah. and it's, you know, however many turns, multiple Jeez. turns to get the bombers all the way down. You're not talking like Jeez. six turns, maybe <laughs> I'm the only Jeez. one flying. It's amazing. Yeah. Play it, play a smaller board and don't put your laden aircraft in high cover unless you want the cheese award. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, now, well, Steve played it well. I mean, I was like, man, I'm going to punish him for putting those two planes on there. And, uh, you know, of course we're playing a campaign too. So shooting down, shooting down planes has you know far-reaching con you know consequences for later games so i'm like well okay if he, if if he's if he's going to commit to playing this table edge he's going to be those planes are all going to be off the table for a long time so i'm going to gang up on the ones he was required to put on the table and at least get some shoot downs maybe some of those guys will get killed and get removed from his roster that kind of thing but he just effectively kited me all over the board until those planes i put on the table were no longer a factor for his bombers. I mean, I was smart enough to keep some of my planes back to affect the bombers, but it wasn't enough. I mean, he had uh, a whole squadron of um, of uh, attack aircraft laden with uh, strafing ordnance to do that piece. That combined with the uh, a whole ton of bombers. I think he had six bombers, two elements of three. All that combined devastated the target and i think that's that's another thing we learned bombers alone especially if they're flying all the way across the table likely aren't going to destroy the target all by themselves but you start putting uh you know aircraft with strafing ordnance or you know one of those equipment cards that lets them get uh, area hits and that's that's a goner probably well yeah that that kind of brings up my next complaint about heavy rockets is because now that we have heavy rockets no one will want to take any other kind of strafing ordinance because you can now do area hits and actually kill a target with strafing ordinance. So well, you, let me ask you this: that surprised me. You said that a target is destroyed when all area targets are, which I don't. I don't argue. I don't. I don't dispute that. I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. I, I was going into it thinking all the targets had to be destroyed, both area and point targets. Nope. nope. A target is destroyed when all of its area hits are or hole hits are consumed. Do you think so. that would uh, sufficiently? level it out or was it just a fluke that the target was so easily destroyed well you guys played with a three hit target right it was a smaller target i want to say it was uh, an artillery position or something which i don't think is a very large target in the scheme of things it, it no. was no like battleship or destroyer or whatever the big targets well were. but but the problem is when you look at the pure odds of it so you have six bombers at least so that's even if they're single engine bombers or they probably were twins they were twins uh, yeah so okay so that's 18 dice that you're getting. Oh, Plus, if you have that, because you know, you know what else we did. This is a campaign thing. Instead of having the bombers all be straight threes, well, we, yeah, we roll. You also had so. pilot skill. So, yeah. so I, I was just referring to just their regular, even firepower dice, not counting the pilot oh, skill yeah, three. Yeah. But you have, you oh, have eighteen he, he dice. Even, he, he attacked from high altitude and handily destroyed it all. Yeah. <laughs> so the odds are not working in your favor because he is bringing heavy rockets. He is bringing, uh, you know, twin engine bombers, uh, and six of those against Atari. That's why they only recommend. Uh, three twin engine bombers against a lot of these targets because you bring six and, and destruction is guaranteed. And then, oh, by the way, if you have heavy rockets, you, in a sense, have six single engine bombers. So you you basically have, in effect, um, brought, not counting pilot skill, 18, 24 dice 
to achieve your aims. Um, th- th- there's no way a three-point target's going to survive because that's 24 dice of area hits. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. So yeah, I, I congrats, punished, Steve, on totally breaking squadron. the scenario. <laughs> I, I punished his attack squadron. He, and, you know, he did it right. He flew, he flew his bombers in, in in a way where they were protected by his attack guys, but they paid a sword price. I think he lost a lot of those planes, and many of them, many of the pilots were killed in the campaign, of course. This is, you know, we have subsequent games that go on after this. Um, so maybe if we kept rolling that scenario as frequently as we seem to be, he probably couldn't continue to get away with that because he'd have no attack squadron, no, enough plays like that. But uh, I don't know. I think even Steve was kind of scratching his head at the end of that, thinking, well, it really worked in my favor, but I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe I should have flown. I don't know. I don't know what his thoughts are on it. Maybe we'll discuss it before it comes well, up again. So so I have the question. is: Does he put Did he put his high cover markers on your side, or did he start on his home table edge and then march four feet down the board? Oh, no, no. He started on his side. He just put them right in the corner. Okay. So they just start beelining down yeah, the so, edge of the So table. Now, they're, now they're moving faster than a bomber does. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was pretty clever. I got to hand it to him. As soon as he did that, you know, we've played it several times. And it, the first time, you know, he just flew him straight there. And, you know, it was a hard game. And then uh, he started putting stuff in high cover. And then I think he started realizing, wait, I could put my bombers in high cover. Let's try that. You know, it just it kind of evolved after we played it several times. And this last go around, I was like, wow, that was that was nasty. Yeah, because I mean, the the fact is, the uh, the the way the board is set up uh, in, in that one is the the target marker is nine inches from the enemy side, kind of yeah. in the middle of the table. So That's what Steve and I were saying, maybe I think I think I recall Steve saying, you know, maybe we keep it like that, like just go ahead and fly this up, but maybe we'll choose to put the target marker in the center of the table so there's still a cost it's still a couple of turns to get to the thing no I, I think that actually makes it easier on them because they have a shorter distance to fly off the board um, yeah, because they still they still only move out of high cover to fly within six inches so it's quick math in public to say we're flying on a four by four board um, you know it's going to be two feet minus six inches they, they have 18 inches to cover before they can release their weapons and they turn yeah, it's for like home three turns yeah. so yeah two three turns so. <laughs> cheese now i i get it i understand it uh but uh i tend to like having my uh my bombers on the board i think it i think it makes a better game but anyway it's it, it you know it is a fun fun game uh, that scenario i mean is super fun but i found it to be most fun when the bombers are coming you know that relentless march across the table in, well uh, and, and to be honest the the game really was designed kind of for a three by three table so if you're not playing on a dramatically huge map if you're playing on a three by three area I think it still works out pretty well because if it's nine inches from from one side, you've got 25 inches to get to that target. And if your bombs can be dropped within six, okay, so I got to get 19 inches. That's that's still only a couple turns, you know, if you figure your bombers are, are doing, you know, oh, five, speed point. five or something like that. So it's going to be, you know, four turns for them to get to their release. Uh, so it's not not dramatically terrible. Yeah, we were doing a four by four, but that is a good point because the distance, you know, the way that depending on what kind of table you're playing, that really impacts maybe decisions you have to make with your, yeah. with your opponent about how Cause you're basically that. adding another, another two turns of movement by adding, making it a four by four table instead of a three by three. So, um, just something to think about. Well, cool. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for tonight. Brett, thanks for joining me. Chris, sorry you weren't here, but we made fun of you in absentia anyway. We'll see you in a couple of weeks <laughs> and we'll hopefully all be playing blood red skies, uh, at the end of the month. Brett, any last, uh, parting thoughts? No, I'm just, uh, 
I've kind of ceased work on some painting and I've been steadily working on this campaign thing to try to put something together that people can, you know, use to uh, kind of copy what Steve and I have had fun doing for the past several weeks since this lockdown thing started. Yep, yep, yep. Well, sounds good. I will catch up with you next week in our next episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you all later.